So you're going to see a video tonight that's going to have a couple of graphic phrases in it. It's uh, an interview at Southern Methodist University, SMU. Um, the man who is uh, facilitating the interviews, there's three of them. Uh, he, I don't know if he's a Christian or not, but he is Canadian. Uh, I don't know what that means. Um, but he is uh, living in underneath the auspices in Canada of uh, some regulations that we have yet to experience but are getting close to in the United States. And he's contending with some of these kids on the college campuses. Um, and it's a very interesting video. It's uh, enlightening. It's also challenging. It's also graphic. Um, but I, I want to use it as an illustration for tonight's study. And uh, you'll see it momentarily. Um, but before I get into the message, I want to read you. I got this email from Gail. I loved it. It was a quote by Solzhenitsyn, Solzhenitsyn uh, Alexander. And he said... Um, Over a half century ago, while I was still a child, I recall hearing a lot of old people offer the following explanation for the great disasters that have befallen Russia. Men have forgotten God. That's why all this is happening. Since then, I've spent well nigh 30 years working on the history of our revolution. In the process, I've read hundreds of books, collected hundreds of personal testimonies, and have already contributed eight volumes of my own toward the effort of clearing away the rubble left by the upheaval. But if I were asked today to formulate as concisely as possible, the main cause of the ruinous revolution that shallowed some 60 million of our people, I would not put it more accurately than to repeat, men have forgotten God. That's why all this has happened. When he spoke of the tragedy and the travesty in, Soviet, in the Soviet Union. Uh, we're, we're in interesting times. Uh, as you've been watching the news, you've seen a number of things. As I'd shared on Sunday, uh, early that morning, I had been interviewed by the Washington Post. um, And again, I I found it fascinating because they wanted me uh, to counteract some of the things that Russell Moore was saying, who's a a theologian for uh, the ethics department of the Baptist, uh, National Baptist Convention. And um, I have the, they actually, the, the article went out yesterday and it was in the Washington Post. And I was at the very end of the article, um, and the title of the article was um, Why Many White Evangelicals Are Not Protesting Family Separation on the U.S. Border. And I just simply said, uh, this is a quote they gave me. It says, Rob McCoy, an evangelical pastor in Thousand Oaks, California. I don't know how she knew I was white. Um, (laughs) Who's also mayor pro tem, said his church... uh, brought food and clothing to unaccompanied minors from Central America who were housed on nearby military bases under President Barack Obama in 2014. He's bothered by the liberal suggestion that evangelicals are callous about the reality of family separation. We don't want to break up a nuclear family because we see the importance of that, but we're, uh, excuse me, but they're thrusting it on us. When we say close the borders and uh, when we say close the borders and quit enticing folks, then we're called xenophobes. We live here, and you have no idea of what our heart is about, but you label us. I also said you call us bigots and racists. He doesn't want to hear from other people of faith about evangelicals' moral obligations. He said he's sick of people telling us what's biblical. It's a joke. It's interesting how all of a sudden America's become biblical. But we forget about marriage and abortion. And then the author says, the culture war, in other words, rages on. Uh, it's an okay quote. I, you, you heard everything I'd shared on Sunday, and that's what they gleaned from it. 
Uh, as a result, I got an email this morning, which was <laughs> it's just getting funnier. Uh, CBS, CBS National News request. Uh, Dear Pastor Rob McCoy, I'm a producer with CBS National News. CBS This Morning with anchors Gail King, John Dickerson, and Nora O'Donnell, reaching out to see if you would be available to participate in a panel interview with other various religious leaders to discuss immigration as well as the topic of parents and children being separated at the United States border. We plan to conduct the panel interview on June 21st, which is tomorrow. Please let me know if you are available. We can provide travel and lodging accommodations. Thank you so much for your assistance, David Dow. I said I'd be happy to help. Let me know if you still need me. Thanks, Rob McCoy. And then, of course, today, uh, President Trump announced that uh, executive order. And uh, he wrote, thank you so much. Unfortunately, we have to reschedule due to breaking news. (laughs) I said, no worries. Thanks. Um, You know, we're, we're asked to be prepared in season and out of season to give a reason for the faith that lies within us or the hope that lies within us. And here we are in a, a day and age where all these topics are becoming front and center and we have to somehow give an explanation for them. And I, I keep thinking of the 750,000 children that uh, have been separated from their parents. And those are our military personnel that are serving uh, all around the world. Um, and and I, I look at this idea that if you break the law, and, and Tony Logan, whose father spent time uh, in Folsom Prison, Tony said, what was I supposed to be, do, be united with my father when he was arrested? And, and yet, we're trying to figure out an answer to this. Um, and when, when we saw what was going on in 2014 as a church, and we saw these children being blanketed in space blankets, these emergency blankets sleeping on floors, that's why we as a congregation went forward to help. Um, and, and none of this is new. It's been going on since 2008. The, the order itself was signed by President Bush, carried on through Barack Obama. And and really what it is, is it's, it's just an endless, and, and they go back to Christians as though somehow we're to be outraged. And, and of course, we, we have compassion, we have a heart, but there's greater aspects that we're trying to process and deal with. And what's fascinating to me is, is as much as the president moves forward in these things every and, and the attacks he receives, um, his popularity rating is still at 49%, which is beyond me. I, it's, it's how anyone can sustain such heaviness. I share this with you because one of the other issues that we're dealing with in our culture is this idea of um, victim status. And one of the ways, now as, as we've covered this, and it'll make sense when we get into 1 Corinthians 6, one of the ways in which we destroy a constitutional republic is we push it towards a democracy. And we talk about a thing called social justice. And we've heard the term social justice, yes? So social justice is uh, an attempt to add to the term justice this idea of social, meaning social, what is the population happy with? Um, and, and when you talk about um, uh, a constitutional republic, it, it's, it's the public thing, Publius, it's the public thing, which means the law. And the constitution, which is where we get the term statute, this idea of a, an, an immovable object, the Constitution doesn't give us any rights. It protects the ones we've already been given by God. And so when you attempt to break down this Constitution, uh, we're not a democracy. Nowhere in the Declaration of Independence, nowhere in the, in the U.S. Constitution, nowhere in the first 10 years of the, of the congressional record or any of our founding fathers' documents is the word democracy used. As a matter of fact, our founders despise the concept of democracy because democracy, simply put, is two wolves and a lamb uh, voting on who they're going to eat for dinner. You understand that? 
So if you have a mob come into town and they catch a, uh, a robber and the, the entire town votes to hang him, um, he's not going to be hung in America. He's going to go before a jury of his peers. And, and this is because this is the law, the statute that gives everyone these rights. And, and so in a constitutional republic, you can have, uh, instead of the democracy voting where, you know, the majority of the people vote for a president, but yet the, the president that's elected is not won by popular vote, but won by a constitutional republic of representation throughout counties and throughout all these areas. And, and the um, electoral college is designed by the lower house, which is representation of population per district, so that the east and west coast don't dominate the, the structure. And nowhere in America can 51% of the people say we want to kill all the Jews. It won't happen in America. We are a constitutional republic where we have representation at the, at the keyest level. Well, to break apart a constitutional republic, you want to push everyone towards a democracy, and you want to shout people down and find yourself connected with as many victim groups as possible. And so this idea of victim status is what is generating or moving on our college campuses and so victims then push forward for their individual rights, um, and they, they suppress the individual freedoms of others by bypassing uh, this, this idea of a constitutional public. And I, I share all that because the breakdown ultimately is the, the, the only group that is really an issue in America, bottom line, are evangelical Christians. That's, that's the major issue because a constitutional republic is designed by the Protestant Reformation that came across the Atlantic and here we set this up looking at um, Exodus 18.24 that you'll appoint godly men who aren't covetous, who fear the Lord, appoint them over thousands, um, hundreds, fifties, and tens. So you have federal, state, county, and local government. Um, and, and this idea of a representative form of government, which was established long before we had monarchies or long before we had um, uh, a, a theocracy in in, uh, in in, in Israel. Uh, and even God warned against a king. He said this to Samuel, and we can go through all of that. And even when you look at Romans 13, and it says we're to submit to positions of authority, and it talks about they're there for our good, and, not, and, and if you do evil, be very afraid. So it's a good and evil concept. But in America, who is the authority? And this is what's so fascinating about our founders. If we ask who's the authority in America, who's the sovereign, who's the one that runs the government? And it's real simple, the preamble, the Constitution, we the people in order to form a more perfect union. And the idea is we are the authority, and we give that power on loan by consent of the governed that they would represent us, and we break it apart because we know the innate nature of man that they want to concentrate power unto themselves. Well, if you can break that apart, then you break apart the fabric and you start to dissolve it. And one of the greatest areas where we're going to break down culture is what Augustine said is called the libido dominandi. It's this power or this lust for power, libido dominandi, this lust for power. And the way this libido dominandi is, a, is established in culture is they do it through what um, Aristotle said is the thinking virtue and the doing virtue. The, the doing virtue is you're, you have desires, so you, you're hungry. So the doing virtue is I'm hungry, I want to get food. And, and yet the thinking virtue is I better get healthy food. So you use your intellect along with your desire to come up with a proper decision. And as the ancients said, uh, the law are the wiser strengths that make men free. So we apply restraint toward evil in order to pursue excellence, right? We got that? And so the libido dominandi is push mankind. It, the way that you, you push mankind is to push forward a doing virtue so that you numb mankind 
And, and you do that through their most debased desires, which is a sexual desire, which is one of the greatest intense, intent, uh, intense desires of man. You have the four most intense drives of a, of a male adolescence. First is for air, then for water, then for food. And then the fourth most intense drive is their sex drive. And, and what you see in libido dominandi and, and uh, um, the Israeli, uh, similar to the CIA, when they took over Ramallah, which was a Palestinian territory, the minute they took it over in 2007, the first thing they started doing was pumping pornography into all of the television stations in Ramallah. Because they knew that all the citizens would be so focused on this intense doing virtue, I use virtue lightly, but this doing desire, that they would be unaware of the fact that they're inhabited by um, uh, a, a military force and that they've been invaded. And, and uh, the Marquis de Sade did that in the French Revolution. It's this way of numbing everyone down by pumping the, the airwaves with pornography. It used to be that these were obscenity laws. It, you, you, would, you, you couldn't print this. You wouldn't find it in America. And now they use it as a, a First Amendment issue that you're allowed to pump pornography into a community. And then we went through the sexual revolution. And as a result of the sexual revolution and no-fault divorce and a myriad of other things that happen, we now have an entire culture that has, similar to what we find in, in the book of First Corinthians, an entire culture that is saturated sexually. And as a result, we've had an enormous divorce rate increase. We've got molestation increase. We've got, uh, I use the word deviance, but it's no longer a psychological term. But we have multiple ways to approach uh, um, sexual relationships. And you see this alphabet that just continues to grow, LGBTQ, silent Q, and, and it goes all the way down the line. And you have to use uh, pronouns indicative of the, the way that they find themselves. And now these would be considered a violation of the law. Uh, they would be considered an act of violence if you don't uh, speak to somebody in accordance with those pronouns. And so what's breaking down is the public thing, the law. We, we, it, it now becomes just chaos. And from chaos, which is what democracy does, it then pushes to an oligarchy where the few rule the many. And we lose a constitutional republic of representation. Is everyone following that? Yeah. Took a long time to explain it. I apologize. Before we get into 1 Corinthians 6, uh, I want to show you the video. It's about 20 minutes long. I'm probably going to cut it short after the third interview. Um, matter of fact, I want to skip the first interview altogether. Well, no, no, no. Just run it from the beginning. And I'll tell you when to shut it down. It's going to begin with um, a, a man. And, and the premise is this. Um, and we can skip the introduction part and get to the interview. How's that? That'll work. I'll give the interview now, or the introduction now. What happens is uh, he sits down at a college campus and he says, simply change my mind. He challenges an individual, come and change my mind. And, um, and he says, go ahead, give me your best case to change my mind. And he does a statement. Uh, he does a statement, uh, and then he says, based on the statement, change my mind according to the statement. And the statement that he chose for Southern Methodist University was, there are only two genders. Change my mind. And now, some of you younger folks are going to go, whoa. And some of you older folks are going, whoa. So we're perfect where we should be with this tonight. Uh, so there's only two genders. Change my mind. And in California, this, this, I'm, on Monday, I'm going up to meet with uh, Evan Lowe, the author of AB 2943, um, and, uh, so I'll have an opportunity to meet with him and 
talk with him. I don't know if it's going to change his mind. Uh, not that that would even have any effect because it's already moved to the state Senate. Um, but, but change my mind is kind of the idea. Um, and when he does this, he gives them free reign to build their case. And the first person that speaks is a young man. He struggles through it. And the second person is so frustrated. They're the uh, president of the chapter of the LGBTQ chapter, and they want to sit down and contend. Um, it doesn't get combative, but you can kind of see the in- intensity of two conflicting ideologies. And obviously, it's, they're going to have struggle. And then the third person to speak is an African-American man. And you see his calm demeanor, and he works through that process. And so without further ado... And, and words are going to be used that you're going to find offensive. I already warned you. Yes? Did any, Okay. Maybe you, Tom, we're sure of that. But uh, <laughs> you've probably said them. <laughs> and some of the jokes you've told. Anyway, where were we? All right. Let's, uh, let's show the video. Thomas. Thomas. Stephen, nice to meet you. Nice to meet you. Okay. So, um... You know, this is just a series we do where I let people know my point of view. There are two genders. Go ahead and change my mind. It's the opposite of cable news. We're not going to edit anything out of context. You said you, you disagreed. I'm open to new ideas. Well, I'm, I'm wondering... I'm wondering the phrasing of the question. Are you arguing that um, there's not more than, like, men and women? Are you arguing there's not a difference between sex and gender, or...? Yeah, I think, I think there are two genders, male and female. Okay, so you're you're saying that male and female is a gender, not a sex. Yes. Okay. So. Both. Okay, and see that's that's where I would have to disagree. Okay. How so? That, uh, male and male and female is something that uh, would be by birth. For example, uh, you probably have a penis, a male sex organ, <laughs> as would I. But why would you assume that? Do do. You? But you assumed it though. Okay, I did. I, did, I apologize. No, you don't, listen, you don't need anything. Yeah. I'm not trying to do any gotcha. I'm just, yeah. It's interesting to me that you assume that I have a penis. Right. Why? Uh, because you uh, seem... Uh, I don't know, man. Because of a, <laughs> is it because of a societal construct? Yes. Is, that's why? Yes. It wasn't because of my bone structure? That you um, <laughs> well, that uh, m- male and female is different than being a man or a woman. Okay. And the fact that we have, as a society, created man, uh, man in the male gender roles, uh, and just as women gender roles, uh, just as we would um, anything else the same way that we would say that, uh, I don't know, that music is good, or we have created it to place people into roles. And so I'm saying that if you were male or female, if you identified more as a man and the gender roles that go with being a man mm-hmm. that you have that so you're I saying so. so you're saying that that sex and gender are very different yes okay i understand so that's your premise um so that's based on on kind of modern gender theory uh when did that start i i, I wouldn't know okay so why let me ask you this before i guess before we get to the history why do you accept that premise uh because it makes uh it makes the most sense to me. I mean, uh, the argument that we've created roles such as um, being being feminine, and we have associated it with being female, as opposed to being female is being feminine. You, sure. Uh, you, you, understand, you understand that there are inconsistencies there. For example, with your presumption of my, you know, my penis. Um, let me ask you this then: How many genders are there? Uh, 
I would say if we're, um, we would say that there are two genders being man and, uh, man and woman, okay. and then that there would be people that don't accept either of those, and that would be in a X or non-identifying category. But what's, what's the number? How many genders are there? I, would, I couldn't tell you. Isn't that important? Um... I mean, were, the point is that before, you know, uh, 1948 with Simone de Beauvoir and then Judith Butler with modern, sort of postmodernism, feminism theory, gender and sex were effectively interchangeable. You can even look on legal documentation, depending on the permit. They are legally interchangeable. I mean, this is the way it's been with societies for millennia. We've had male and female. Um, so when you radically change that, you do have to have a number, in, in my opinion, and some kind of an end game. It can't just be, well, we're going to shift the rules based on how people feel. So I, I can understand if someone says, hey, you're wrong, that there's a difference between sex and gender. But the burden of proof at that point would be on the person asserting that they're different to tell me how many genders there are. Because we as a society, right, have to know this. We have to function within certain parameters. Um, and, I, and I would say that those, uh, those parameters for gender would be whatever that person wants those parameters to be. If they identify as uh, a man or a woman or they don't identify, that would be their prerogative and that it's not my place or your place to tell them that they have to identify with being a man even if they are male or they have to identify as a woman even if they are female. Um, but, we, but we do that all the time. People want to be things that they aren't and we say that's not the case. You know, this is, we constantly do that as a society, so I don't understand why it's... I'm really sorry to interrupt your conversation, but I have some logistical questions for you. My name is Lauren Chem, and I work at SME Student Activities. Yes. We manage the outdoor events request process. Mm-hmm. Um, are you the sponsor of this activity? It's College Republicans, actually, and you can speak with uh, Darren. Wherever Darren is, he spoke with Drew, and we have a permission. So. Okay. Thank you very much. So, sorry, I'd like to continue on that thought. Uh, where were we? Sorry, I, for, I forgot. Uh, you were talking about... Um, we, have to, uh, we do it all the time. We, we do it all the time. So why, why is it a problem to do it if someone we know biologically is a male or a female? Um, and that can never be changed. It can never be changed biologically. Uh, but someone chooses to say that they're not. That's a very, that's a very modern idea. Um, and the question is, why do we now have to subscribe to that? And then it gets into the idea of compulsion of langu- compelling language, you know, uh, gender pronouns. Um, what's allowed? What's hate speech, right? It's a, it's a fundamental retransformation of society based on, from what I'm hearing from you, unless I'm mistaken, abstracts. I haven't heard a number. I haven't heard what defines male or female. Only how people feel. And I just, that's, to me, that's not very convincing or or conducive toward a productive society. Okay, and I would, uh, and I would argue that, um, for example, we're we're talking about, uh, like, like you said, when I assumed that you had a penis, when I have no idea if you have a penis or not. And so that people, when, uh, people subscribe to being, uh, you, you would say you see somebody that uh, you would presume to be male, and you ask, the, and you would assume that they are, would identify as being a man. Sure, um, as you did, yeah. Yes, and uh, and so if, um, but if you had told me that you are that you, um, in fact, don't identify as being a man, that you identify as being a woman, I would believe that would be wrong of me to try and sub, uh, subscribe you to being a man when you say you identify as a woman. What if I told you that I believe I am a bobcat? Good for you, man. But would you accept that? Would it be wrong of you to not accept it? 
Yes. Really? Okay, well, listen, I appreciate your intellectual consistency. Why would it be wrong of you to not accept my identification as a bobcat? Because uh, if, you Id- if you identify as a bobcat, man, go for it. Great for you. Well, I appreciate it. Listen, I think you're a nice guy. I hope, I hope this has been productive and you, 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 I believe this has been civil. Yeah. But um, you, you do see, obviously, this is, very, this is a very emotive uh, argument that you're making. Right? You're making an argument from a very emotional place. And I think it's because you're compassionate. It's because you're a good person. But, and I appreciate your intellectual consistency, but the ramifications of saying that we have to acknowledge somebody legally who identifies as a bobcat, you understand, would be insurmountable. The ramifications would be all sorts of new legal identifications that would be required, which don't currently exist. Why the conversation? I would love it if you want to sit down afterward, and I would love to sit down and have have, continue this conversation. I would. Well, are you? Thank you, Thomas. Are you done? Yeah. I appreciate it, Thomas. Thank you. Madison, I'm co-president of Spectrum, the LGBT organization on campus. Great. Love to talk to you about this. Great. Thank you, Madison. My name's Stephen. Okay. Uh, I appreciate it. uh, You sitting down and. what is it that you disagree with? So um, I think you happen to be, you're confused on the idea of gender versus sex. I'm confused, okay. Yeah, okay. So when we say there are only two genders, we often confuse the idea of gender and sex. Sure. Sex is a generalization of XY chromosomes. So we assume that, or, you know, XY, XX, you know, combination of chromosomes. Um, so we assume that, you know, male and female comes from your chromosomes, right? But uh, that's really just the idea that there's only two possibilities of sex, right? So... Even within sex itself, you know, you can be born uh, intersex, which means that you're born with sexual characteristics of both what we would consider male and female. Um, And then you have gender, and gender is more about a mental state based off of societal norms. So within our Western society, we often discuss gender as being binary, meaning that there's two options. Sure. So boy, girl, man, woman. However, in other societies, non-Western societies, there are more than two options. Okay, I'd like, so, can, I, can I ask you a couple yeah. questions there to unpack? Um, appreciate you taking the time, by the way. So what, what was your, your name? Madison. 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 So let's go to the sex concept before mm-hmm. gender, I think, because the idea of gender being different from sex is predicated yeah. on the, the, the idea that sex is um, binary. That's where you mentioned that term, gender yeah. binary. So you mentioned intersex. Mm-hmm. Okay, I'm, I'm aware of intersex. Now, of course, intersex doesn't necessarily mean that someone is completely between sexes. Usually they have very identifiable characteristics like a very large clitoris or micro penis. In that case, it also affects 0.08. People think this is funny. It's just true. Less than 0.08% mm-hmm. of but population Earth. But, they still, but they still exist. Let me ask you this. In human anatomy class, uh, how many fingers are you taught human beings have? Uh, we're told typically that people have 10. However, there are people born with 11 fingers. But you're fingers. taught 10, right? Yeah. So we don't teach people there are people born with 11 fingers. There are people born with 12 fingers. Yeah, but we don't completely so, dismiss that those people exist just because that they're uncommon, do we? We teach that human beings have 10 fingers. Mm-hmm. I would wager that everyone here has been taught, yeah, human beings have 10 fingers. Of course, there are anomalies. Mm-hmm. That's the same way that we treat intersex or these, as you said, you mentioned chromosomes, genetic abnormalities that are a very extreme case. So I think what we need to do is remove this extreme case with sex, just as we would with how many fingers, toes, how many kidneys you have, how many feet you have. There's something that's typical or something that's atypical. Then you go to gender. Um, this is where, listen, I'm open. Everyone has said sex is different from gender mm-hmm. and gender is not non-binary. Um, so I would like uh, allow you to kind of unpack that for me. Yeah. So uh, 
in Western society at least, so in our country, in our society, we we tend to think of gender to be on this binary spectrum mm -hmm. of you don't, well not even really a spectrum, just a binary. So you have man, woman, and that's it. Those are the only two options. However, gender really is more of a spectrum. So it's non-binary. There are not just two options. Okay. You have man, woman, and then everything that doesn't fit into just man and woman is considered non-binary. That's an umbrella term, and that includes a lot of different categorizations. So how many genders are there? I can't, you can't put a number on the number of genders because everyone uses different words to classify themselves. I would disagree. I'm not, that's where it changed my mind. I'm not convinced that anyone can just use any classification for themselves for their mm -hmm. gender, and certainly not that then we have to compel society to uh, mm -hmm. address them this way. Right, I'm sure you can understand that the, the compelling of language mm -hmm. is an issue. So what gender do you think you are? Well, I, I'm a male. Okay, well, I think, maybe I think you're a woman. No, legally I'm a male. Oh, it says on my driver's license that I'm a male. Okay, so that's your sex. No, it's a, yeah, I'm that's also a male. Sex. That's your sex. It says okay. on my carry so, certificate um, that I'm a male. Gender. Some legal you. documentations say gender. What if I say I don't believe you? It doesn't matter. Exactly, it doesn't matter if you don't believe me. No, it doesn't matter because biologically... What gender, what gender do you think I am? I would assume you're female. Yeah, see, so you're making assumptions. Yes. I identify as non-binary. Yeah, I don't, respectfully, it, it doesn't matter. It does matter, Now, actually. let me ask you this. What it would you say if I have... It matters what pronouns you use for me. It matters how I'm okay. socialized in society. It matters my gender expression. It matters the way that I'm allowed to express myself. It matters what bathroom I use. It matters who I'm allowed to live with. It affects every aspect of my life. So you saying... What pronouns what, should I use? You should use they, them pronouns. So you saying that you and what don't if believe I don't? me... What if I don't? If you don't, I would consider that disrespectful, and that's actually an act of violence to misgender a trans It's an act of violence. That is an act of violence to intentionally misgender someone, the, yes. Here we come to the issue, and this is why I'm out here. Um, you just said that's an act of violence. That means yes. it's an actionable offense. That means it's a crime. So you believe that for me... I didn't me, say it's a crime. I said it's an act of violence. An act of There's violence. a lot of things that are not considered crimes that are acts of violence. Okay, so you believe it's a non-aggressive act of violence. I think that... Okay, when you misgender someone, if you were to misgender a trans woman... Yes. Uh, trans women, especially trans women of color, are the most... are have the highest rate of murder within the LGBT community, right? So if you were to intentionally misgender a trans woman... That could put her at risk of murder. You understand that? Because people think because I you're don't. trans... I don't understand. I'm I think sorry, that I don't really understand. does show that you're privileged in the situation then. Yes, I, I, I believe we're both... I think I, you're extremely privileged in the situation that you don't have to experience that or that you don't have to worry about that or consider that, that you don't feel like you need to respect I, people's pronouns. I'm, I'm, I'm considering this and I'm asking you questions. Mm -hmm. You said these are the pronouns I need to use. Yeah. I said, what if I don't? You said that's an act of violence. Yeah, I would so consider I'm that an act of violence against me. Okay, so that's I a crime. Consider that you, an act of violence against you is a crime. I would consider that... So, I would consider you, you being disrespecting me as a person. And that's not... Okay. Okay, and that's not even ethical. It doesn't matter if it's legal, it's not ethical. And I don't know how you can do something that's considered unethical. I don't know how you can not allow me to speak and ask questions based on your own premises. Please, this is, we're trying to keep this civil. I haven't yelled at you. I haven't I'm accused you of anything. You're getting very heated. You said that's an act of violence. Mm -hmm. That's a crime. Okay. I didn't say that was a crime. You're an act of violence. You said mouth. an, an, an act of violence against you is a crime. So is, I did not say that. You said it is an act of violence against you. I said you. it's an act of violence, and I said misgendering you, you, anyone's an act. Yes, of violence. you said it is an act of violence against that person. That is in fact a crime. So here's my question: Since we've now decided we don't know the number of genders, mm -hmm. it's a spectrum. It exists. There is no set number. You've asserted the premise that we are required to use the pronouns that are preferred by the individual. We have no idea how many pronouns there are. We can never know how many pronouns there are. And to not use a proper pronoun you could ask. is an act of violence against them. Did you ask my pronouns before you sat down? No, I didn't ask your pronouns because Why? I haven't referred to you with pronouns. You didn't ask my pronouns, though. You just said you can ask. Yeah, you can ask. What are your pronouns? 
but you didn't ask. What are your pronouns? You just talked about me being privileged. You understand no one goes around asking pronouns before they speak with people. I asked and you And so how to you ask of a restructuring yourself? of society. I did ask you how you based on a number yourself, that's not, not tangible with gender versus sex is something that is uh, incredibly not, corrosive. Did I not ask you how you identify yourself? No, I don't yes. believe so. Yes, I did. I did actually. You said you identify as male, and that would after the conversation. Sure. Okay. Well, yeah. let's let's say that. Sure. So we need to ask pronouns mm-hmm. before every person. Yeah. And if we don't use those if pronouns, yeah. How many pronouns are there? There, it's the same kind of thing. There aren't like oh, a sorry, limited you, number just of pronouns. So people can see the sign. Would it be okay if you just step aside for just a second there's no, there? There's not we a also limited have a number of pronouns. Going. Thank you very much. There's no limited number of pronouns. No, I would but say someone, the typical ones are she, her, hers, him, his, her, his. Okay. Sorry, him, <laughs> he, him, his, and they, them, theirs. Those are the typical number of pronouns. We usually use three. Okay. So I'm, I just want to, again, the goal is here to change my mind. Mm-hmm. I'm open to new ideas. Yeah. There's no set. Yeah. A different kind of space around us. I think, I don't know. No one's, yeah, no one's being accosted here. We're just having a conversation. Oh, yeah, there's no question of accosting. We're just trying to, like, bring the conversation so that it's not like a kind of like a spectacle. separate stage spectacle kind of deal. So, mm-hmm. like, we're all in conversation around and we can, be, like, engage with your sign. And sure. I appreciate it. But it's, but it's not, though. It actually, it's a conversation between two willing participants right I now. And I will go. other people talking as well, though. I'm not. I don't consent. So, um, so this, is, this is your setup, and we're supposed to just follow your rules. In this yes, setup. when one is invited and we've gotten the proper permissions, and I've said... It's an open campus, a college campus. Sure, it's so an open campus. Can yeah. do whatever we want. You can do whatever you want. You can protest, but it doesn't mean that we're, I'm going to be engaging in conversation with the crowd. No, that's not incorrect. But I, would, but I would love to continue my conversation here. In, in regards to the, the discussion, uh, she brings up Eastern philosophies. His statement is because, let's turn the lights up, because um, uh, some culture used it, uh, does that make it valid? And she says, yes, I believe it does. He says, well, what about slavery? There's nations that have embraced the concept of slavery. Does that make it valid? And, and, and then it, it gets intense at that point. Um, but at, at the conclusion of it, um, she, she obviously doesn't change his mind. She gets convoluted. And then another man comes up, and it's much more civil in that regard. But what's interesting is the lady that tried to interrupt, she comes up, and she cusses at him, puts her hand on his shoulder, and, and says, you're a such and such. And he said, um, he said, not only is that an act of violence, but it's also battery because you touched me without my permission, but I'm going to let it go. Uh, and and it's, it's a very, and he does this on all the campuses across the country. Uh, and you can see how convoluted and odd it gets and how hard it is for younger people to try to navigate these waters. Yes? Anyone struggle with that? I don't know. It was intense. So that brings us to a culture that's very similar to what we're living in now. Uh, this, this church in Corinth, as we've, we've covered in, in previous studies, is a temple of Aphrodite. Uh, every family's been involved in every type of sexual deviance possible. Uh, the city's struggling. And then Paul spends a year and a half at the church in Corinth, discipling the church. He's now in Ephesus writing a letter having heard that a man is sleeping with his father's wife. They're getting drunk at the communion table, um, and they're celebrating these things. And even things, the scripture says in 1 Corinthians 5, even things pagans wouldn't do, they're still, they're, they're, they're proud of, of their tolerance and their inclusion. And, and Paul says these things shouldn't be. And then he goes through this whole discussion, and we went through it. And then uh, we stopped last week in chapter 6, in chapter 6. And I want to pick up in chapter 6, verse 12. So please stand for the reading of the word of the Lord. 
We covered this briefly, but we're going to do it in greater detail. It says, all things are lawful for me, Paul writing, but all things are not helpful. All things are lawful for me, but I will not be brought under the power of any. Foods for the stomach and stomach for foods, but God will destroy both it and them. Now the body is not for sexual immorality, but for the Lord and the Lord for the body. And God both raises up the Lord and will also raise up us by his power. Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? Shall I then take the members of Christ and make them members of a harlot or a prostitute? Certainly not, exclamation point. Or do you not know that he who is joined to a harlot or a prostitute is one body with her? For the two, he says, shall become one flesh. But he who is joined to the Lord is one spirit with him. Flee sexual immorality. Every sin that a man does is outside the body, but he who commits sexual immorality sins against his own body. Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have from God, and you are not your own? For you were bought at a price. Therefore, glorify God in your body and in your spirit, which are God's. And Lord, we ask your blessing on the study of your word. Lead us into all truth, we pray. And Holy Spirit, open our eyes that we would know the truth and the truth would set us free. And I pray your comfort and encouragement for all who are present in Jesus' name. Amen. Have a seat. So um, I I need to finish at a specific time and we've got a lot to cover. And so I'm going to bring us to the passage of scripture that we just read. Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? Shall I then take the members of Christ and make them members of a harlot? Certainly not. Or do you not know that he who is joined to a prostitute is one body with her? Uh, For the two, he says, shall become one flesh, but he who is joined to the Lord is one spirit with him. Now, uh, we began with verse 12, which says, all things are lawful for me, but not all things are helpful. All things are lawful for me, but I'll not be brought under the power of any. He goes through this idea of foods and food for the stomach, stomach for food, but God will destroy both it and them. And the idea is they would be so divided over food that had been offered to idols and they, they didn't want any food offered to idols. And Paul will go through this whole picture that, you know, uh, it's lawful for one man, maybe not for another. And it's all dependent on the conscience of the individual. But what we pointed out last week is all things and the word all in, in the Greek means, yeah, all things are lawful for me. So the word in the Greek for all is all. So if you have wine, it's lawful for you. If you eat food sacrificed to idols and you have no problem, it doesn't affect your walk or cause anyone to stumble, it's lawful for you. If you, if, 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 I can go through the whole thing. If you believe that you want to go dancing, it's lawful for you. We're not saved by what we do, we're saved by what Christ did. Everyone understand that? Our righteousness is not because of what we've done, but because of what he's done. His righteousness is put on our account. And so when we sin... We're still righteous in his eyes because he's covered our sins, past, present, and future. Correct? Everyone understand this? We're saved by grace through faith, not of works. It's a gift of God, lest any man should boast. And so when we stumble or we struggle or we eat something that's not good for us, and I love a good bowl of Lucky Charms at night, and some people think that that's a, you know, a desecration to the temple of God. And I mean, look at the beauty of this temple. I mean, it is a... So, so with this idea of, of the temple of the Holy Spirit, and you want to, you know, you, you, you want to buffet your body, and you want to be in, in good health, and these are true things. But for some of you, you believe that you're supposed to follow the Daniel diet, and you don't have any meat. And I look at you, and I think, boy, you're not going to live long. And it, it, it's one of these things where it, you rise and fall before one master, and that's the Lord. And if I'm starting to tell you how to eat, drink, and do all these things, find a new church, because we're, we're turning into a cult. Did you hear that? 
And, and, and the idea is what you do, you do before the Lord. And all things are lawful, but not all things are profitable. Not all things are helpful. Does it help you in your walk with God? Does it draw you closer to the Lord? I, you know, some of you saying, well, I, I refuse to see any movie past G. And some say, well, PG is okay. And well, who sets that standard? You know, the Motion Picture Association of America, and it used to be that there was a priest on there and he would dictate it. And now they've even removed any Christian vestige. And who does the ratings? And where are you getting your, your and where's the scripture in regards to Well, I certainly don't see R and I don't, I, I, I refuse to see anything that's anything sexual in nature, but we'll watch violence. Um, and, and, and I'll watch football. I mean, these are two massive human beings crunching each other and and we can go on and on and I can judge you and you can judge me and all these things. But the idea is, is it helpful in your walk with the Lord? Does it draw you closer or push you further away? Does it, does, is it beneficial? Some of you, I mean, I can go through a myriad of things and I, and I bet you if I polled the entire room, there are some things that some people are doing and others that they consider that sinful and thank goodness that none of us are in charge or this would be a really weird, funky church. Everybody grasp that? But what Paul is saying is there's one sin. There's one issue. Now you are saved and you have your get out of hell free card and I've cleansed you from all unrighteousness, but there's one sin that is preeminent over all the others. Because it has an effect that no other sin has an effect like this one. And he gives a really good explanation for it. And he goes into this and he says in verse 15, which is what we covered. Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? Members meaning we're together. We're in membership. You understand that? As citizens of the United States, we're in membership under the United States Constitution. As citizens of this church, we're under uh, our articles of faith that we're pre-trip, pre-millennial. Not everyone is, but at least you understand that. And if you're in disagreement with it, you're just not going to try to, you know, spin off your own little deal. We, we all dwell together with an understanding. We're members And this is a club that we believe in the death, burial, resurrection of Christ. We believe that his body was broken. His blood was shed for the remission of our sins. Our communion is the thing that unifies us. That's what makes us one. And this is the idea that we're members of Christ. Everyone in this room that professes the name of Christ is here simply not because of how good you are. You're here because of how good Jesus is and what he's done for us. That's the membership. You understand that? Okay, so with this idea that we're members of Christ, he says, shall I then take the members, those who are in union with the agreement of Christ, and the Bible says, look at me, the Bible says, pay attention, the Bible says that we are a temple of the Holy Spirit, Christ dwells in us. We become a a trichotomy, body, soul, and spirit, soma, psyche, pneuma. So the Spirit of God resides in us, and we become one with Christ. My wife and I are one in union, and I'll explain that momentarily. And it says, shall I then take the members of Christ and make them members of a prostitute? What is a prostitute? A prostitute is someone who sells their body for the profit of money and looks at sex as negotiable. There's, there's a need out there. I fulfill it. I get, I get paid for it. I have no emotional uh, connection. It's simply uh, a contractual agreement and, and funds are transferred as a result of an action. Does everyone understand prostitution? One of the oldest businesses in the world. And, and in Corinth, it was very, very abundant. So he's saying, shall I then take the members of Christ and make them members of a prostitute? Now, stop for a moment and let's think about this. What does it take to have a, a human being, male or female, 
What does it take in their life to put them in a place where they are prostituting themselves, giving their body sexually for the sake of financial gain? Are they having, in your estimation, a vibrant relationship with the Lord? Are they connected with the Lord? Or are there things in their life that brought them to that place? I mean, it takes a lot to get somebody to that place. And you're, you're, you don't know who's going to be behind the door when the door opens up. You don't know if your life is in danger. You're in some seedy hotel. Uh, you're having to dwell in the darkest caverns of, of the community. You're under arrest by law enforcement. Uh, you certainly don't want the spouse of, of the person that you're engaging with to know. Or, and and this, is, this is a, a tough place to be. And then the idea of closing your eyes at night to go to sleep. There's, there's heavy drug addiction. There's violence that's perpetrated upon you. What, what pushes somebody to come to that place? And in that midst, are they somebody that is really sound and strong and healthy and, 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 and so what he's saying is the person that you're uniting yourself with as a Christian who believes in purity. And this is, this is where Paul is saying to the church, the one thing that makes you stand out amongst all the Corinthians a Corinthian woman was considered a harlot. That's, that, that was the term that you would use. What makes the body of Christ stand out in this community? It's the way you treat one another. That sex is given by God as an expression of intimacy. That you connect both physically, emotionally, and spiritually. And then he gives you this act as a connection point in relation to that. And you above all people, that marriage is a microcosmic picture of Christ's love for the church. The, the, the bride is the bride. It, it represents the church. Christ is the groom. He is, the, the groom represents Christ. And the two become one where we're cleansed and she comes down white. And the two become one flesh and they dwell together and they're not ashamed. And the scripture says that they intimately know each other and there's no fear. Now the person behind the door waiting for your 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 client to show up, you're scared to death on the other side of that door. There's fear. There's fear of the police. There's fear of reprisal from the the spouse or the girlfriend or the boyfriend, right? And so you have a body of believers that should be representing the purity and the security of, of the sexual relationship being united with a prostitute. Now you think, okay, well, it, it's not good. And, it, and it's, it's detrimental to society, so is drinking, so is smoking marijuana, so is, so is smoking uh, nic- nicotine, so is, you know, watching violent movies, so is playing Nintendo, so is, so is, so is. What's the difference? There's a distinct difference, and that's what Paul wants to emphasize, especially to the church, because this is the one thing, as Augustine pointed out, that destroys a culture. And he says here, certainly not, you see that? Certainly not, exclamation point. Do not do this. And then verse 16, do you not know that he who is, and that we're joined is very important. He who is joined to a harlot is one body with her. So what happens is you have, uh, you have physical, emotional, spiritual connection. You join together and something happens. Even if it's a contractual agreement and there's an exchange, something happens. I'll explain that momentarily and I'll do it psychologically and I'll do it through science. And then he says here, for two, uh, uh, joined to a harlot is one body with her, for the two, and then he quotes out of Genesis 1, for the two, he says, shall become one flesh, meaning they become one united in purpose. 
Verse 17, but he who is joined to the Lord is one spirit with him. They're united. So the idea of purity is I am the Lord's until God gives me somebody on this earth. And then the person he gives me is somebody who represents him. So the two of us emphasize what he's done in our life. And that's why he says a man will leave his mother and father, be cleaved to his wife. And the Bible says that men are the head of the house. A wife smiths a husband. Children obey the Lord. It's unto the Lord. You'll do well. Uh, you know, and, and, he, and he, you'll live long on the earth. And the idea is when you lay down your life, the two become one flesh. A man will leave his mother, father, be cleaved to his wife. And the man says, a man who loses his life will gain it. So in a marriage relationship, and this is what I've often said, and, and of course we have different constructs in, in uh, our, our culture today, but, but the, the, the biblical concept is a man, if there's two genders, a man is different than a woman. Now, for some of the younger people, go, I don't know where you're going with this. Well, this is biblical, and soon I won't be able to teach it, but this is biblical. And the concept is there's two genders. There's male and there's female. And then in the midst of male and female, there is the world. And the world is trying to divide us from intimacy with the Lord. And the significance of the sexual relationship in representation of the, the, the woman being the bride of Christ, the church, and the man being the groom, being Jesus, he lays down his life, cleanses, and the two become one. So we were at enmity with God. He laid down his life. Cleanse us of all unrighteousness, and the two became one. What does that mean? The Bible says, having the same mind, let the mind that was in Christ Jesus be in you. And so we become like-minded, like-minded. Hold every thought captive to the mind of Christ, right? We become like-minded. So after 28 years of marriage, I can begin a sentence. Michelle can finish it. She can begin a sentence. I can finish it. She closes her eyes. I go to sleep. I can anticipate her every move. I, 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 like I've said to you a hundred times before, we can be a crowded room. She can be opening up gifts on her birthday. And I can tell by the movement of her eye whether she likes it or hates it. And none of you in the room will have a clue. The two become one. And, and I, I, know, I know everything about her and she knows everything about me. And she knows things about me none of you know. Thank God. And, and with that, I'm also assured of her love. That even though she knows things about me, she loves me. And you know what's interesting is the Lord knows everything about you. Even the things nobody in the room knows, maybe even not even your spouse. And he still loves you. Now that's remarkable. Because he loves you so much, he laid down his life and he's patient and long-suffering. And that intimacy is what drew you to him, that he would see you in all of your frailty, all of your faults. And he would simply say to you, I love you. And more than that, he says, I forgive you. And not only that, you have a penalty to pay. I'm going to cover it. I'm going to cover it. And so what he's saying is for the church to stand out in the culture, this sexual union is so important in reflecting my love for you. And the purity of that is so important that it reflects the purity in a culture that builds foundations of family because the, the child then relates to the, the roles that are established by the Lord in Ephesians 5 and 6. And all of a sudden you start to understand these things. But the minute someone deviates from that and breaks it apart, the children are all affected by it. And everyone in the room has some sort of an effect as a result of the quote-unquote sexual revolution. We've all experienced divorce. Everyone in the room has had some sort of an experience with divorce. We've all, we all know about abortion. Everyone in the room has somehow been affected by abortion. We all know somebody who is, is struggling in their sexuality. We've all dealt with that. Is this true? Okay. And so 
How does, does a culture get restored? And this is what Paul is saying to the church at Corinth. This sin above every other, all things are permissible. Listen, you don't have to walk around being legalistic, but understand this. If you want to build a strong family, you want to build a strong culture, the most important thing is the sexual approach that you take in regards to each other and towards this community. Right? And so he points out, he says, he who is joined to the Lord is one spirit with him. Now I want to get to this portion. I got 22 minutes. He says, flee sexual immorality. Hey, don't have anything to do with it. Run as far away from it as possible. If it's there, you're over there. Run away from it. And he says, I want to give you a really good reason why. Every sin that a man does outside the body is outside the body. But he who commits sexual immorality sins against his own body. I'll explain it momentarily. Do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have from God, and you are not your own? For you were bought at a price. Therefore, glorify God in your body and in your spirit, which are God's. He bought you and me with his blood. He intimately loved you, knowing everything about you, and paid the penalty for you. And he wants you to live and dwell in a community with that same understanding of intimacy. And you don't take advantage of another human being because you have a selfish urge. You deny yourself, pick up your cross, and follow him. And the idea is this is intended for an expression that God gave of marriage. I'll show you. Genesis chapter 2, verse 24. Therefore, now man was alone. It wasn't good. It was the only thing in the Garden of Eden that wasn't good. He says, I will provide a helpmate. And, and he does this. A man... You know, he takes, he takes out of the side and says, bone of my bone, flesh of my flesh, which is a Hebrew idiom uh, for Abraham to say to, or excuse me, for Adam to say to Eve. And so here you have in Genesis 2.24, therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife and they shall become one flesh. Join means abide fast, cleave fast together, follow closely means emotionally, Right? Physically and spiritually, you're walking in union, you're holding fast, you're connected in every level, there's intimacy, and then the one flesh means united alike one. So listen, you go up to Michelle and you tell her, rob, 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 rob. She goes, I know my husband and I, I'm, I'm going to talk with him. I hear what you're saying, but uh, let me have a conversation with him. And, and if any of that is true, she's going to correct me and, I, and we'll have a conversation and then the, we'll remain one. We'll remain one. The enemy comes to steal and kill and to destroy, and he wants to destroy, and the building fabric of every culture is the family, and if he can divide and conquer, and, and really what you find is this umbrella, which is God, then you find the husband, then you find the wife, you find the children, the weakest of the four categories of the children, they have the most levels of covering in Ephesians 5 and 6. Uh, the wife, though, you know, much more spiritually in tune in many aspects, I can tell you right now, when I was an athlete, there wasn't a woman on the face of the earth who could beat me in my event. So physically, there are some women probably now who could whoop me, but at, at, at their age, and I remember one lady, her name was Dot, and she was a shot putter at uh, Fresno State, and I, I, maybe she could have taken me, but I'm, I'm just saying, physically, this is the issue. And, and so you have all these levels, and, and even looking with children at down here, there's even a protection for the children from the father, because if the, the mother's removed and the father's there, you know, I remember when the kids were young, they come to me, and I told you the story, they come to me with their paintings, and they're little, and they've scribbled, I'm looking at it going, this is awful, what are you, is something wrong with you? 
I mean, my children should be Rembrandts. This is, this is terrible. And, and she'll stop that. And she would come in as that covering over the children. She goes, this is lovely. I, is it blues over you? That sky? Oh, no, it's a sun. A blue sun. You're so creative. And I'm thinking, you're stupid. You know, I said, <laughs> you, I, you, there's this, and, and it's not, listen, it's not all the case, but this is the idea of the nurture aspect. And so physically, there is a difference in the, in, in the, in the two sexes, um, in the two genders. But the idea is, even with our differences, we're one. Even with our differences, we're one. We're one in how we approach the children. We're one in how we approach the culture. We're one in how we approach society. We're one because we're both unified with the Lord. He created us man and woman. He created us in his image. Father, Son, Holy Spirit, we're created. We're created for relationship. It's not good that man should be alone. Now, if you want to be alone, all you have to do is be selfish because nobody wants to be around you. But if you want to be other centered, you'll, you know, and and I've, I've done funerals of people who live their life completely for themselves and the room is empty. And I've, I've done funerals for people who live for others and the room's completely packed. And we're the fragrance of Christ. And the fragrance of Christ is God so loved the world he gave. And when you give your life away, people are drawn to you. He won the world by dying on a cross for their sins. And, and this, is, this is the picture. He says, submitting to one another in the fear of God. Wives, submit to your husbands unto the Lord. Children, obey your parents. They'll go well with you. Live long on the earth. Both are to submit. Both are to yield. The submission of the wife is not mandatory. The submission of the wife is this idea of entering into a covenant relationship and saying, I recognize, and this is the picture, is, is the church is submissive to Christ, so, and Christ is submissive to the Father, but the, Christ, though being God, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, took on the form of a servant unto death, even death on the cross. They work together in unity. They work together in this purpose. And, and, and they're stronger that way. One last thing. For me to relate to a man... Not a problem. Everything that I would love about a man is what I love about myself. For me to understand a man is not a problem. I, I, I'm, I'm wired that way. And we've had a massive amount of communication there. But for me to relate to Michelle and for Michelle to relate to me, she, why doesn't he talk more? And I'm thinking, why does she talk so much? Right? And for me to understand her, she's a watchmaker. She, every detail is just so intricate. We've got to put it all together. It's connected to so many different things. They're all wired. <laughs> and it works. And it's so pretty. And it shines. And it's beveled. And look at it. Just, and I'm going, watch, time. Uh. <laughs> We're different. And for me to understand her, I have to lay my life down. I have to be patient. For her to understand me, she has to lay her life down. She has to be patient. And what's amazing is 28 years of marriage, we learn new things about each other. And it's like a discovery all the time. But for me to relate to another man, there's not a lot of discovery there. And for a woman to relate to a woman, not a lot of discovery there. But this is our culture. The Lord designs it this way because there's something significant in it. Now, we all get bent or warped and, and, and to relate to an opposite sex is so bizarre to us because of something that's happened. I get that. And, and, and that is a trial. And, and then you come to the church and you find out the church doesn't even want to talk to you because, you know, some deacon in a church molested you and you've got some sort of a struggle over these things or you had a parent that was distant or, and no one wants to take the time. And so the church doesn't show grace where the Lord does. Right? Are we tracking that? And so you come to this place where it says, a man will be joined to his wife and they shall become one flesh. And then you have this. Philippians 2, and I read it earlier, 
Therefore, if there's any consolation in Christ, any comfort of love, if any fellowship of the Spirit, if any affection and mercy, fulfill my joy by being like-minded. Being the same, the way you go forward in life, the way you think of things, having the same love, being of one accord, of one mind. And, and that idea of like-minded and one accord, similar in sentiment, like-minded, and you're together. You face the world with the same ideology. You face the world with Christ's process, his concepts. You raise your children in the love and the admonition of the Lord. You're in agreement. You have, you have one spouse who follows the Lord and another doesn't. Some of you live in those relationships. That's difficult. It's called unequally yoked. And, and one unequally yoked is you have two oxen pulling and one's pulling this way and that's pulling the other way. It doesn't work. But pulling in the same direction with the same mind, with the same purpose as it works. And God says, if you're going to affect culture, you don't want to be divided at home, let alone having to contend with culture. You're going to have enough issues out there. Be unified in the home. Endeavor to keep the unity of the spirit and the bond of peace. We endeavor for the unity in the church. And if we can't come to this agreement and this understanding, we're going to break down. And so this is where he's saying we have to be like-minded, one accord. Christ was like-minded. Christ, though being God, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but took on the form of a servant unto death, even death on a cross. That's in Philippians 2. You can check it out. And then we come back to 1 Corinthians chapter 6, and it says, Or do you not know that he who is joined to a prostitute is one body with her? For the two, he says, shall become one flesh. But he who is joined to the Lord is one spirit with him. And the point of it is this. Here we go. This is your science for today. Researchers have found that the naturally occurring hormone oxytocin and love are intimately related. Often called the love drug, oxytocin plays a role in bonding, maternal instinct, enduring friendships, marriage, and uh, orgasms. Right? Oxytocin is a pain-killing drug. It is this thing that endears you to somebody else. It has, it has all kinds of physical neurons that are wired. And it ca- it's, it's like if you have ever been addicted to opiates or taken opiates, you know what I'm speaking of. I remember the very first time I, I took Vicodin, I thought if everyone were on this, there'd be world peace. That's true. I remember they gave me a shot of morphine. I'm like, this is the best. I mean, I think all the world could be together if we could just do this. And then I came out of it. I go, gosh, this is an awful place. Right? And, and drugs pick you up and leave you further back than where they promised to take you. And you're just living in, in some euphoria that's a mess. Well, oxytocin is the same way it bonds you. And that's why the drugs are, that's why you're drawn to drugs, because you want that. There's something in it. And what's fascinating is how this, this drug, oxytocin, works, both in the male and the female. Oxytocin released through sex creates a lot of trust, but only for a short period of time. So it's a bonding agent. And so sex occurs, oxytocin is released, like endorphins, and, and, it, and it creates a lot of trust. And this is where you get the good girl drawn to the bad boy syndrome. The good girl drawn to the bad boy syndrome. The good girl's going around, she's following the Lord, she's having one thing, and all of a sudden, you know, the guy comes in smoking a cigarette, and he's ripped, and he's got the sleeveless, you know, shirt, and he's just got muscles in places where I don't have places, and he's just stunning, and he's captain, you know, no pimple, and he's chiseled out of granite, and she just sees him, she goes, woof, and, and he doesn't go to church, he's, he's a player, he's with, and she thinks, if I can just get him to connect to me, I will be safe, And that's where you find in the animal kingdom, you know, a, a, a weaker female is, is grooming a, a larger male 
trying to somehow, hey, if he can protect me, I'm going to be safe in, the, in, in, this, in this pack of, I don't know what chimpanzees are, pride pack, I don't know what you call it. And this is the idea in, in a woman, so she's, she's drawn to the bad boy concept. But what happens is, in sex, oxytocin is released, and here's what happens. After receiving their feel-good dose, the males go back to being themselves. The female view is very different with this oxytocin release. Here's what happens with women. After making love, a woman might mistake the oxytocin release for feelings that tell her, this is your perfect partner. So she's now connected to bad boy. Bad boy's back to going, you know, play in the field. And she is, she's going to let her whole life go to hell to, to somehow get him back. And that's where you get the, the battered wife syndrome. That's where you get all these things. And, and then all of a sudden the breakdown. And the kids are being raised and she's pregnant and they're all being raised in a mess and a tragedy and all of this. And there's no like-mindedness. You see, what happens is oxytocin is saved for the very end. You're supposed to build a friendship. And, and you, you build on that, and you get to know each other. And then you, you start to, to test the waters and to make sure that this person is like-minded, and you start to see them in difficult situations. You're almost like an undercover detective, and you're seeing how they respond. Are, are they angry? Are they driven to anger? You know, a gentle answer turns away wrath. Uh, the anger of man does not accomplish the righteousness of God. Are they gentle with children? Do they have any type of... And you start to see, do they read their Bible? Do they, uh, is there a fear of the Lord, which is the beginning of wisdom? Is this somebody that... And you look for that, but no... The world looks differently. That's a strong guy. I want him. Well, that strong guy doesn't necessarily know how to raise a family and doesn't understand this concept of love, doesn't understand this concept of submission, doesn't understand this concept of protection. All that is void. And if you're going to create a society, you have to apply this because you will be bonded. And what happens is this is released. And if there's anyone in the room who's ever had an addiction, I can guarantee you said, I swear to God, I'll never do that again. And you did it. And the reason why is because the endorphins and the longing, and you went back to something that was killing you and killing your family. And you were doing it because there's just every neuron was wired to want that at the expense of everything else. And it destroys everything. And God is saying, I'm going to give you a bonding agent. After you've connected on the soma and the psyche and the pneuma, I'm going to give you a bonding agent where that intimacy will be expressed in this connection that will blow your mind. And it'll be a building block that you'll be able to withstand any broadside. Your family will survive all the greatest trials on, on earth. You will stay married till, till the Lord takes you home until death do you part. I'm going to give that to you. But you got to trust me. And part of that comes in the process of denying yourself. And I'll walk through it because I've, I've only got eight minutes left and I've got to hurry through this. Despite those initial feelings, it does not necessarily mean that the person is trustworthy. The perception that you have at the moment is an illusion you create about the person that may or may not fit what happens next. Genesis 2.25, and they were both naked, and the man and his wife were not ashamed. Not ashamed means there was no fear or shame. There was an intimacy. There was a peace. There was a comfort. You don't have to worry about, is he going to leave me? Is he going to beat me? Is he going to yell at the kids? Is he going to go drink again? That's gone. Because before the Lord, he brought, while you were resting in God, Adam rested, God brought Eve to him. The two became one. And in that, there was a bonding. Bone of my bone, flesh of my flesh, and the two were naked and unashamed. The idea is there isn't anything I have to hide from you. I'm not ashamed of you, and I'm not afraid of you. 
And you know, it's kind of nice, and, and some people in the room can testify to not having experience and testify that they would like to have had it. There's something special about growing up in a household as a child in a family you don't have to be afraid of. And many of you can testify in the room that there's not a lot of fun being raised in a family where you were scared to death every day. Yes? Love. And I've covered this, but I have to do it quickly because we're limited on time. Love. I've done this before. Eros, agape, phileo. Eros is uh, where we get the word erotic. Eros is a selfish love only intended for objects, never for people. It's only intended for objects, never for people. It's the love you have for a thing. You have a love for a car. You have a love for an outfit. I, I've often said, I, you know, like things like, I love this shirt because it make, makes me look skinny. And all of you go, no, it doesn't. That's the idea of objects only. Eros. It's selfish. It's selfish. And it's only for objects. It's the love you have for a thing. So it always comes with erotic. And it's this idea that you see someone and you're drawn to them. And you go, oh, I'd like to have that on my shelf. And you're attracted by the way that the person dresses, or you're attracted by the way that they comb their hair, or the perfume that they wear, or whatever it is, or that they're strong, or they're, and you're drawn to it. And it's, and it's a doing virtue. It, it's, it's, it's just instinctual. I've got to have that. Right? And, and yet, Eros is the most prolific form of love in our culture, but it's the lowest form of love in the Greek mindset. It's where we get the word erotic. And, and you know, every, everyone who's, who is, participates in, a, in, in pornography, in some of the porn movies, you know, there's, there's an 80% addiction rate in, in, in the porn industry. Suicide is rampant in the porn industry. And most of these people that in, are engaged in it are from broken or runaway homes, and they've experienced the shame, they've experienced the fear, they've experienced the broken home. And yet, you know, we, we feed that industry. And, 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 and we teach all of our kids and we teach our girls dress like objects and we teach our, our, our guys to, 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 to we dress like objects and we teach our, our guys to uh, treat them like objects. And, and uh, every object comes with its price. If I buy you dinner, will you sleep with me? And, 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 and this, is, this is the breakdown of culture. But then God brings this agape or agapeo. And this is where you get John 3.16, for God so loved that he gave. It's the greatest form of love that gives. He laid down his life. In, in the word agape, it says, greater agape has no man than this and to lay down his life for a friend. It's, it's a love that is, is selfless. Not that we love God, but that he first loved us and he laid his life down for us. And in that, it's selfless and it's only intended for humans. He didn't die for the baby fur seal or the California condor or the spotted owl. He died for you. Now, all of the creation is blessed by that, but he died for you and he died for me. And what did he do? While we were yet sinners, he died for us. He gave us everything. He poured out every drop of blood on our behalf. And then phileo is what you see in Philippians 2. You also see it in John 21. It's this idea of mutual love. The two become one flesh, having the same mind. Let the, have the same love, be of like mind. It's only for humans, and the two become one, mutual. You become that way with the Lord. Let the mind that was in Christ Jesus be in you. I'm in him, he's in me. Cuckoo, cuckoo. There it is, right? It's the formula. A plus A equals phileo. Agape plus agape equals phileo. The husband initiates, it's Christ, not that we love God, but that he first loved us. He lays his life down. That's what you look for, women. A man who lays his life down before the throne of God and lays his life down before you. That's manly. You don't think that nails held Jesus to the cross. He could have torn everyone to shreds. Nails don't hold God. Love did. Love denies itself. 
Christ, though being God, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but took on the form of a servant unto death, even death on a cross. Lays his life down. And the man receives that from the Lord and gives it to his wife. Lays his life down. I want to serve you. And as he lays his life down to serve, she responds. As you've given me your life, I give you my life. Christ died on the cross, not so that all mankind go, oh, that's so stupid, forget you. No, he laid his life down so that you would say, I give you my life. Isn't that what we did when we became Christians? Lord, I give you my life. And the result is phileo, mutual, like-mindedness, one. Almost done. John 4, 7 and 8, verse 7. Beloved, let us love one another, for love is of God, and everyone who loves is born of God and, God know, and knows God. He who does not love does not know God. This is the greatest way to know if you know God. Do you know what it's like to lay your life down? Do you know what it's like to be mutual? Do you know what it's like to be one? Do you know what it's like to serve another human being, not in selfishness, but in selflessness, saving yourself for another human being? So the oxytocin isn't given to someone else, but the bonding agent is for them and them alone. And in dispersing oxytocin all over the planet, you start to devalue the intimacy and nothing is, is intimate and nothing matters anymore. And you become callous and hard and everyone is hurt in the wake of that. But God says, no, he who does not know love does not know me. For I'm love. He could have used any description to describe himself. God is omnipotent. God is omniscient. But he described himself as love. And this is the idea of First of Corinthians 6, that this is the only sin that screws up the culture. Libido dominandi. If you can warp us, you can own us. But if you have love, he says, in this is the love of God was manifest toward us that God sent his only begotten son into the world that we might live through him. In this is love. Not that we love God, but that he loved us and sent a son to be the propitiation for our sins. He paid the penalty. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. Win the world by this. Live it and proclaim it. This is what sets us apart from every other culture in the world. This is countercultural. Everyone wants to operate on a doing virtue. Libido dominandi. They want to dominate. They look at sex as a way to dominate another human being. What's in it for me? But it's an expression of laying your life down. And then it comes to this. Love has been perfected among us in this. That we may have boldness in the day of judgment. Because as he is, so are we in this world. There's no fear in love. But perfect love casts out fear. Because fear involves torment, but he who fears has not been made perfect in love. We love him because he first loved us. You see, the torment and the shame and the destruction of the culture in 1 Corinthians 6, that Paul says, this is the one that the world can't compete with if we do it right. The world can't compete with this if we do it right. The two were naked and unashamed. The bonding agent will hold I'm not being sold a bill of goods. My heart has been knitted to somebody who's already proven themselves because I've spent time with them as a friend. I've gotten to know them and watch them in the, in the circle of life and, and, and how they interact with people. I've seen them reading their Bibles. I see them going to church. I see them praying. I watch the way in which they speak to other people. I see the tenderness in their, in their approach to children. I'm blown away by this. And we, and we don't start looking for someone because they're strong and they have muscles. We start to see their character. 
We start to see with the eyes of God and start to examine humanity through the eyes of God. And then all of a sudden, culture starts to emphasize character instead of selfishness. And we're not going and play, being a player. And I'll leave you with this last thought. It's 831. I'll leave you with this last thought. One of my favorite. I've told it a thousand times. I love this story. I was in a public school. I was teaching on this issue. I was talking about the four most intense drives of a male. You know, water, air, food, sex. I said a male adolescent has a sexual thought every 15 to 18 seconds, whether it's major or minor, because they're just driven by it. And I wasn't allowed to talk about God. I wasn't allowed to talk about the Bible. Public school, this kid raised his hand. All the girls thought he was cute. I mean, they, they, they wanted oxytocin with this guy. I mean, this is... And he's rippling and everything. And, and he raises his hand. And, you know, bless his heart. I mean, steps out. And he goes, hey, I got a question for you. I go, what's that? And he says, don't you test drive a car before you buy it? I go, yeah, you do. You test drive a car before you buy it. Absolutely, you test drive a car before you buy it. Well, then why should I wait until I'm married? I said, whoa, 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 time out. Time out. A car, is, a car is an object. You go, oh, yeah, you're right. And all the girls are like, yeah. But then he said this, and I'll never forget. He says, why would God make me this way? This is one that stumped me. He said, why would God make me this way? He invoked God. I wouldn't allow to. He goes, why would God make me this way? I go, what do you mean? Because I'm like, oh, jeepers. He says, why would God give me the fourth most intense drive I possess as a male and say, wait until I'm married before I can bond? I didn't have the answer. I kind of, and his comment was, is God cruel or something? And when he said that, I'm like, yeah, he is. Inside. I didn't say that out loud. I'm like, yeah. Because, I mean, there's not a male on the, world, on the planet who hasn't gone, why did you do that to me? Because that's just all you're thinking about, and you're saturated in a culture that is inundated, right? Because they're trying to do this libido dominante and make you just an idiot. So they can, they can dominate you, so that you don't pursue higher learning. You're just stuck on self-indulgence. And, I, and, and, and as I was, he asked me this question, I prayed for wisdom, and the Lord said, tell him about Jeff. And Jeff was a guy I'd been talking about who had saved himself till marriage. The very first time he kissed a, a woman was on his wedding day after he exchanged vows very first sexual experience on their honeymoon night. And he asked me, why would God make me this way? Is he cruel or something? I said, he said, give me a good reason. I said, I'll give you a good reason. Jeff. He goes, Jeff. I'm like, yeah. I said, here's a guy that took his fourth most intense drive. And contrary to popular belief, a man can't do without air. He can't do without water. He can't do without food, but he can't do without sex. You will live without sex. It's difficult, but you can do it. Most men would give up air and water and food for sex, but that... (laughs) And I said, but a guy like Jeff who takes the fourth most intense drive he possesses as a male, puts it on hold for the sake of his future spouse to keep himself, uh, you know, emotionally connected. And the oxytocin is for bonding for the person of my future. And, and I'm going to be a provider and a protector. I'm going to work on my character. And I'm going to be that covering for that person when the time comes that God's called me to, that I will rest in the Lord. and The Lord will bring that person to me. And, and I'm going to wait. And I said, and I want to tell you about a guy like Jeff. I said, you know, Jeff, I was at his house watching football, fourth quarter of football game. Score was tied. They were within the 10-yard line getting ready to score less than a minute remaining on the clock. He was a Raiders fan. And, and just as the play was about to happen, the, the door opens and his wife comes in with groceries. And he turns off the TV and he helps her in with the groceries. I'm like, dude, the TV. And I said, I remember when at the end of a meal, he started helping dishes because his wife wasn't talking. I said, I remember this two-year-old came in the room with a dirty diaper. Nobody wanted anything to do with it. And if it was my kid, I'd go, hey, go find your mother. But the baby came in, and he picked him up. Hey, let's go change that, little buddy. 
And all the girls are, oh, that's so sweet. And most men are like, I don't do that. Shut up, dude, you're told, woman. I got you bounded by oxytocin. And, and, and I said, I looked at him and I said, did you have a good dad? He goes, no, I had an awful dad. I said, your mom have a good husband? I said, he said, no, he's an awful husband. I said, okay. Wouldn't you have liked to have had a father like Jeff? And don't you wish your mother had had a husband like Jeff? He goes, yeah. Yeah, I do. Bless his heart. And I said, listen, buddy. You don't get to pick the parents you get in this world, but you can pick the kind of parent you're going to be. And that's the beginning of a change of a culture. Because Lord willing, that kid is going to be a provider. He's going to be faithful. He's not going to be a player. And the building blocks will be established. 